This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to talk about uh, something a little bit different today. Um, but given the uh, pandemic, it seems pretty appropriate. So the COVID pandemic has really resulted in an unprecedented change in our routine. Uh, and um, the repercussions of the global lifestyle changes that have been uh, induced by the COVID-19 pandemic on the autism population are really largely unknown. Individuals with autism spectrum disorders often have increasing behavioral symptoms uh, with changes in routines. So this is a major change in routine. And the question is, what effect has the pandemic had on children with uh, moderate to severe autism in particular? During disasters and pandemics, we it's well known that vulnerable populations are overly influenced and negatively, negatively impacted by these occurrences. But uh, really, little is known about uh, what happens with children with autism. Pandemics really differ from other types of disasters uh, in that they prevent victims from getting together. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, instead, uh, it's the opposite. Uh, uh, there's separation, isolation, and quarantine. And this ends up uh, with interference in the normal routines and rituals that generally protect us all uh, and protect family functioning during crises. And this is especially relevant to the autism population where repetitive behaviors and interests are a defining feature of the condition. And people with autism uh, tend to uh, like to adhere to relatively rigid daily rituals and schedules. The World Health Organization uh, declared the COVID-19 outbreak uh, caused by SARS-2 a pandemic in March of 2020. And shortly after that, the United States declared the pandemic a national emergency. Since then, there have been several uh, fairly significant societal changes, including children having to stay home from schools as uh, institutions around the country were closed. Uh, in California, this began in March of 2020. And many of the children uh, that uh, we see didn't really return to school in person until August or September of 2021. So uh, well over a year uh, when uh, they did not have the physical, social interaction and educational interaction uh, that they were used to. Staying at home and in most cases uh, not attending school uh, that is not getting school in person, uh, can create a relatively unique stressful situation for children with autism and their families. Uh, carefully developed routines get disrupted, support networks have in many cases disintegrated or at least gone down quite a, a lot. Uh, and parents have been asked to do a job that training teachers find challenging. Uh, and the parents haven't had any uh, particular training in most cases in teaching uh, their children the way a teacher would. These challenges happened abruptly and the consequences could be particularly profound in the autism community. It's important, uh, and we felt it was important, to ask how COVID-19 
was affecting the health of children and their families and what might be done in the future should a similar event arise. Now, there have been a number of reports in the, the medical literature over the past 18 months about the impact of COVID-19 on children and adults with autism and their caregivers. What has been found and reported is that there, uh, as might be expected, and there has been an increase in demands on caregivers of autistic children and youth around the pandemic globally. And there have been reports from all around the world about this. Uh, one of the parents may have had to stay home uh, in order to care for their children uh, who would otherwise have been in school. And um, the studies uh, have reported that uh, parents have experienced an increase in stress and mental health related symptoms during lockdown measures. In a study from Qatar, uh, uh, 58 caregivers, uh, uh, a large number uh, reported a significant increase in their care burden. Uh, and uh, interestingly, two thirds of those uh, reported that their uh, the individuals they were caring for had either unchanged or improved behavior during social restrictions not worsening behavior as one might have expected. But uh, despite the fact that their behavior in many cases was improved, the caregivers had a, a, a marked increase in care burden and uh, a tremendous amount of stress related to that. They also found that individuals with autism had reduced levels of aggression during the pandemic, which again is, uh, is interesting in that one might have thought that might be the opposite with a change in routine. In another study in Northern Italy, 94% uh, uh, oh, of families had a challenging time uh, with increased difficulties in managing daily activities. And in that study, children, uh, children had more intense and more frequent behavioral problems in a fairly large percentage of cases. Uh, and a history of prior behavior problems predicted worsening behavior during the pandemic. So we see conflicting results in different studies about behavior of the children, uh, certainly not conflicting about the stress and burden on the parents or caregivers. So uh, another study in Portugal showed that there were uh, changes in behavior in children with autism uh, that included increased anxiety in both the children and the families compared to a control group of uh, families without autistic children. A study in Michigan uh, showed high increases in levels of stress in caregivers of younger children and, and in older individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So uh, again, hitting both uh, caregivers and individuals with autism. And then finally, uh, another study from Turkey uh, was quite detailed and uh, showed uh, that uh, the majority of uh, individuals with autism had problems understanding, these are uh, more severely impaired individuals, had problems understanding what COVID-19 was and the measures that it required, such as mask wearing. Uh, challenges, uh, they had challenges in implementing social distancing and hygiene related regulations. The majority stopped receiving special education services. Uh, and uh, the authors noted the pattern of increased stereotypes, aggression, hypersensitivity, behavior problems, and sleep and appetite changes. Uh, so across the board, uh, worsening problems in all of those areas. 
uh, they uh, found that the children had a significantly fewer uh, uh, number of hours of sleep at night during the pandemic. And the anxiety levels of caregivers were high and correlated with the current behavior problems uh, of the children and not the previous behavior problems. So in March of 2020, uh, we were poised to start entering uh, participants into uh, a study of a clinical trial of the use of cannabinol cannabidiol uh, to uh, treat problem behaviors in children with severe autism. That was right when the pandemic hit and everything closed down. So we did not actually begin entering participants until June of 2020, but uh, realized that we really needed to find out what the effect of the pandemic was having on the children that we were including in the study, because this might alter the results of the study. Uh, and so we added a behavioral questionnaire uh, called the Health Impact Survey uh, adapted for autism and related neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, and parents were asked to complete the questionnaire at the beginning of the study. What I'm going to present to you is unpublished data yet. We are putting together a, a, a paper on this now based on 40 children, and these are all boys uh, ages 7 to 14 years. Uh, who had very frequent daily behavior problems, including aggressive and self-injurious behaviors, frequent repetitive and pervasive stereotypes, uh, and extreme hyperactivity. Uh, their baseline educational status before the pandemic, uh, 31 were in elementary school, seven were in middle or high school, and two were homeschooled. 23 uh, of the 40 were in a special ed classroom in a public school, District seven in special ed in a non public school, uh, eight in a general education program with support services, and two were homeschooled. Their baseline communication skills were uh, varied nine were nonverbal, nine used single words only to request uh, things that they wanted, 12 were able to use short phrases, <clears throat> three word phrases at least to request some of the things they wanted. And 10 were able to use longer phrases or sentences and to, in some instances, uh, relate something uh, that had happened. But what happened with COVID was that 90% of the children moved to homeschool. So almost all of them uh, were no longer in their classrooms. They were in homeschool. 63% uh, uh, had their schoolwork using telehealth or teleeducation on Zoom, Skype, or phone conversations. 17% only received their uh, educational materials through emails sent for ma or mail sent to their homes. 14% uh, received educational services through in-person appointments outside of the home, but not at school, but with another uh, tutor or some other um, person and 6% received services by a teacher or behavioralist or therapist going to their home. Uh, so, um, uh, and of the 40 families, only four uh, said that education and services had not been impacted due to COVID-19. And uh, those were uh, mostly, uh, two were homeschooled already and, um, and two had services set up so that the children were receiving continuing to receive services during the pandemic 
two-thirds of the children also lost their, uh, access to uh, additional educational and support services, uh, including speech therapy, occupational therapy, and ABA. And when services were not lost, they were often modified to uh, online interventions using Zoom or similar um, methods and not in person. And parents reported that this was very difficult <clears throat> that the children really did not want to uh, pet, children were not able to pay attention and do uh, the therapy as they had when they were uh, doing it in person. Uh, a small number of children had more difficulty adjusting to changes in daily routines during the pandemic than before. Uh, 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 only a few um, adjusted to, uh, to daily routines well. Um, and before and during the pandemic, that didn't change. Um, but those who uh, occasionally adjusted to routines before the pandemic, uh, before the pandemic, this is at Blue, uh, did not do as well during the pandemic and moved over to rarely or not at all being able to adjust to daily routines. So there was some, uh, a small uh, percentage of children who did have difficulty with adjusting to routines. Uh, some of the interesting things were that uh, a third of the children spent more time watching TV and digital media such as YouTube during the pandemic. Almost none of the children had spent time on social media before the pandemic, and this didn't change. Uh, and half the children did not play video games at all prior to the pandemic. During the pandemic, two of those children began playing video games, and four others increased their time spent on those games. Sleep was uh, affected uh, less, less so than I actually thought it would be, but 28% uh, had more difficulty getting to sleep during the pandemic. A small, a very small percentage, 19% uh, slept fewer hours during the pandemic than they had before, unlike one of the previous reports that had shown uh, a lot of sleep uh, problems and, and getting fewer hours of sleep. And once asleep, the children were uh, slightly less likely to awaken during the night. Um, so 20% had less nighttime awakening, whereas 15% had more, and the rest, no change. So that wasn't um, terribly, uh, sleep didn't seem to be terribly impacted, except for difficulty getting to sleep in about uh, 28%. Uh, Self-injurious behaviors uh, did increase during the pandemic. The uh, percent of children with self-injurious behaviors before the pandemic was about 42%, and that jumped 10 percentage points uh, to 52% with children who had not had self-injurious behaviors before developing during the pandemic. There was no indication that we found of any changes uh, in adjusting to routines, to changes in routines, level of hyperactivity, anxiety, or aggressive behaviors. Uh, or amount of uh, frequency of stereotypies or repetitive behaviors. And we did not find any effect of language ability or IQ on any of the variables that we examined. So what have we learned from this? Well, it appears that the vast majority of boys with moderate to severe autism in our study were negatively affected by the pandemic in some way. Uh, their inability to attend school with peers and have in-person learning was certainly impacted at 90%. Uh, they lost ancillary services, uh, and there was a loss of social interaction with their peers and uh, other people outside the immediate family. Behavioral issues were more prominent during the pandemic, uh, including self-injurious behaviors 
and to a lesser extent, difficulty adjusting to changes in routine and difficulty getting to sleep. The change in routine led to more time spent on digital media, but little to no time in peer social interactions. The limitations uh, of doing something like this are, uh, are there are a number of them. Uh, some of the questions were a little ambiguous and parental responses may have differed because of that. The questionnaire was administered during the pandemic and it asked questions about what the child was like pre-pandemic, three months before, as well as what they uh, had been like in the last four weeks. But that relied on parental memory of what the child was like three months before. And certainly with kids changing all the time anyway, uh, that could have uh, uh, skewed the results some. And the questions were addressing a number of areas, but might not have been focused enough to identify specific problems. Some of the parents' comments from the uh, questionnaires, uh, many of them commented that the child was unable to sit and focus for Zoom teaching, and a parent had to sit with the child in order for them to attend at all. So that um, a parent found, uh, found themselves spending <clears throat> a large part of the day uh, sitting with the child on uh, at the computer uh, or iPad going uh, just to keep them paying attention to the teacher uh, or helping them to do their homework or, or their schoolwork uh, when it was sent home. And that certainly um, negatively impacted quality of life for everybody. <clears throat> Some of the examples of, their, of parents' comments, um, concern I have is that since the structure and environment changed academically, my child might fall even further behind in school. No social stability or access to extracurricular activities for peers. He loves school and misses his teachers. And this was a, these were very common threads. What's the long-term impact? Well, we don't know what the long-term impact is, um, but the comments as well as our data raise the question that, uh, that there might be a, a long-term impact. Uh, while the short-term changes in behavior appeared relatively mild based on the questionnaire data, the long-term impact is more difficult to ascertain. The loss of school, therapy, and routine activities might have a longer-term impact on behavior, socialization, and learning, not reflected in the relatively short-term data presented. As we come out of this period and children are back in school, it's going to be really important to monitor them carefully for any indication of long-term effects. And these could include changes in their interest in school, uh, changes in their interest in other activities, uh, their willingness or ability to participate in social interactions with their peers and others outside the family, and the emergence or worsening of aggressive, self-injurious, or other problematic behaviors. And uh, it might be uh, uh, important for schools, therapists, and parents to monitor for behavior changes and address and report those as they become apparent. Um, so that issues can be addressed in a proactive manner if they are uh, beginning to occur. And finally, parents need a well-deserved break for being teacher, therapist, and playmate, and go back to what they do best, being a parent. The pandemic has really made it clear that there's a need for public health and educational groups to plan for possible future pandemics and other kinds of disasters with protocols for rapidly mobilizing additional resources to support caregivers. And uh, this would hopefully enable them to look after themselves and their dependents with autism. Training of parents and caregivers in parent-administered home-based therapy 
for children with autism might be considered, uh, especially to tie them over in the event of similar unexpected adverse scenarios. And proactive programs can be developed to teach adaptive coping skills to caregivers in the event of such an unexpected change happening in the future. Hopefully we're not gonna go through anything similar again, but if we do, we really need to be better prepared. Uh, I'm gonna thank all of the families who participated in the study and who continue to participate in our study. And thank you for your attention. Fascinating stuff, but why, why therefore is, does it seem to be at odds with some of the sources that I've been quoting? Perhaps they're different, perhaps they're um, limited. But the, the one I mentioned this morning and talked to uh, earlier today and talked to John Hickey about as well, uh, you, you get video games um, that online appear to be antisocial, you know. But the, uh, there's, a, there's a community called the Ortcraft community, which uses Minecraft, the game, which says that it's helping children with autism learn social skills and build relationships. Um, so... Is there, is, is, did you have any sense of the possibility that some of the social media or game playing might indeed be, uh, never mind social media, but game playing might indeed be a useful technique? Not in our population, no. Uh, and I think Dr. Sedvix addressed that earlier um, when she said that it depends on the, uh, it depends on what you're using the uh, games for. If you're using it because it's fun and you want to share it with somebody, then it can be a social uh, interaction. But if you're if you're doing it as a fixation and an obsession, and it's only that and nothing else and, and nobody else is involved in it, then it's not helping with social interactions. And our kids, remember our kids are that are in our study, are on the more severe end of the spectrum and for the most part are, are not using uh, these kinds of games for any kind of social interaction. They don't play with other kids, they don't talk about it, they, they are really uh, more fixated on it. Now there are exceptions, uh, but uh, and I think uh, as, as she said earlier, uh, um, you know, people who are higher functioning um, may be able to use it for that purpose, um, but I didn't see that in our population. Hmm. Um, Connie, did you have any thoughts on, on what you just heard from Doris? I'd be curious to know. So we have seen um, uh, similar uh, challenges in our, our patients' uh, population um, as a consequence of the pandemic. Um, certainly, the, the, the worsening uh, behaviors is really common, uh, not only across those who have intellectual challenges in addition to their autism, but those who um, were considered um, higher functioning, but also have um, mood disorders or anxiety that were previously relatively well medicated. And so um, the changes that came upon them as a consequence of the pandemic really did impact their uh, behaviors. 
Um, and, and, you know, several individuals needed uh, urgent or uh, emergent uh, care as a consequence. So the pandemic has really been challenging for many. There were a few whose parents found that the opportunity to spend time with their child was very beneficial because they were able to see um, how their child learns and they'll be able to support them. And those are things that they didn't really have insight in. So I I think there's been some pros and cons uh, depending on the families. Um, There have been some that had uh, benefit from the experience and others that was um, really challenging. Another another thing that um, we have experienced as a consequence of the pandemic is the challenge of making uh, autism diagnosis in the in the young kids who were born during that period of the pandemic. And so, you know, it's a child who um, lives with just mom and dad. There are no other kids. Right. And mom and dad might have been working and the child is there and trying to play. But their level of social engagement is not there. So that has created a new challenge for us as to how do we think about autism in in that population? And, uh, you know, many of the times what we have done is to say, you know, we, we need to provide opportunities for social stimulation and then we can revisit uh, the question, but that's been one of the challenges that we have um, also seen. Yeah, um, both of you. I, I'm I'm interested in going back to that comment I made earlier this morning when I read read a little piece from Simon Baron Cohen's book on the patent seekers, mm-hmm. um, and to see whether that anything was learned during the pandemic, which obviously. Is, is a time of great focus, even if it might be an unpleasant focus, that could be that prompted any thoughts that might um, shift the way in which education is conducted. I mean, he specifically is talking about how can we bring hyper-systematizing into education, you know? And he's talking about imagining an educational system that offered two streams, a broad curriculum, and a one for specialists, the hyper-systematizers. Um, uh, uh, is there anything in, in the behaviors that you noticed emerging and, um, Doris, that you talked about in your proposal there that you think um, would be useful data, information to think about schooling, about education? I mean, you, I know you had some slides at the end there, but. Um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? How you both think about teaching and whether something learned from this ghastly business? These are just observations at this point. Um, but um, I think one, uh, these are things that we already know though, that children with autism uh, do well in a structured setting, structured school setting. And one of the problems with excuse me, doing homeschooling is that it's not always able to be structured as well. Um, and I think that, um, that this just reminds us that um, that there should be, that there needs to be a lot of structure and, and maybe that goes along with hyper-systematizing, but um, um, 
other than that, I have not seen anything that really would help with answering your question. <laughs> in the study, I'm, I'm really focused on the study, not talking about any other studies or clinical work. Yeah. Any thoughts, Connie, on that one? Or? Yeah. So you certainly see uh, a lot of um, children with autism who uh, exhibit pattern-seeking behaviors and are considered hypersystematizers. Um, I think that uh, the, the, the pattern-seeker approach to learning might be something that will be useful to implement in, say, the middle or high school years where we're beginning to think about the transition phase. How do kids transition out of school into work? Um, and how can we build on their, their strengths to help them in that endeavor? You know, I have, I've seen many kids in clinic, and I remember one kid in particular, she drew this detailed dragon. Um, you know, I, and, and she did it in a matter of 30 minutes. Um, there's no way I could do anything like that now. How can we capitalize on on that skill set, right? Um, where was the last time she saw a dragon or something? <laughs> I think she saw it in a book or something. <laughs> or maybe on, you know, maybe it was um, uh, maybe that movie, uh, How to Train Your Dragon. I don't know, but um, you know, the. She, there was there was no dragon in the clinic, no representation of a dragon in the clinic. So she was pulling it from her memory as she was drawing it. And she did it in a brief period of time. So I think, and one of the things I often tell uh, the parents of my patients is that let's look at what they're good at. What are their strengths? And let's build on that to help them as we think about what happens when they, you know, when, when school's done, what do they do next? Um, and I, I think that's probably where um, we can really incorporate that that pattern seeking uh, ability. Um, and it's gonna vary with each child because, you know, like we said, they're all very different. And so everything needs to be tailored. Yeah, there's a question, Doris, from um, Garrett Hoff. Um, if Dr. Trauner's data was primarily through parental accounts, how do you think parental mediation of an autistic person's experience affects the data you collected? Is there any area that you would like to see your findings confirmed through different methodology? And if so, what would that methodology be? These are observational uh, questions. So this is uh, what the parents are observing. They're not what the child is feeling and it's not intended to to suggest that this is what the child is feeling. Um, because um, most of these children are uh, very limited in their, um, in their either willingness or ability to communicate um, this kind of information to us, uh, we have we have to rely at this point on on observation and uh, uh, other people's observations and our and our own. Um, I can uh, I can certainly uh, 
there are other things that could be done to try to get at uh, what the children are feeling more more um, directly uh, or how they're responding to the pandemic more directly. Uh, it's and this would be something that would be wonderful to do. Uh, it's not included in our in our uh, research, but uh, what I would do if I if I could is uh, one of the many things I would do is to uh, have them draw pictures um, of uh, what's going on now. Draw pictures of school. Draw pictures of home. Draw pictures of COVID because they've all heard about COVID. Um, and, you know, we can get some feeling for how they're responding to it that way. Um, and also by doing some other nonverbal types of, of, uh, of tasks that um, would be a, a more direct way of finding that out there. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we are limited in what we uh, are able to do um, within the confines of the study that I'm doing. Um, but in more general terms, there are other ways that we could go about finding out more about how the pandemic is affecting these children. Yeah. Um, this, is, this, this doesn't Im immediately flow, but it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit because we've been talking about lost touch in the other talks and connectivity and so on and so forth. And you're talking about... Um, uh, how people feel when they're remote and there's there's more in imposition of solitude and so on and so forth. Um, do either of you have any comments on how music fits into this? And let me context that a little bit. One of the things that we we have talked about before and have some interest in is is the way in which Kelly Hunter uses Shakespeare, as you will recall, to teach uh, kids on the spectrum and so on, largely because it brings a wonderful rhythm to their operation because it's it's all iambic pentameter, de dum de dum de dum, and there's also a lot of papers I've been looking at recently which talk about the the impact of music on on um, uh, getting a whole a whole audience's heartbeats in an orchestra in an orchestral setting in sync. Um, this this whole capacity to to sync the heart or to sync systems using music seems immensely important. Is there anything that you, either of you have come across and worked with that, that speaks to this? It's just, it's not specifically on your point of your talk, but it just fascinates the heck out of me. <laughs> well, I can say that, uh, that almost all the children that I see with uh, on the spectrum, uh, love to listen to music and uh it does seem to have a common effect and they have very specific um likes and dislikes uh of, of, about what music they like and what music seems to calm them and then on the other hand there are some of the children who uh if they hear a certain song they'll become very agitated uh so uh they have a, a very specific uh likes and dislikes that um uh and it's all different it's not not the same music for everybody either uh and how we could harness that um uh, not 
Well, let me ask another question, which is my sneaky way of getting to one of these questions uh, uh, from Sandy. Is there any research on sensitivity to sound, which shows that it's not the sound that's painful, but the memory that the sound is associated with that triggers painful memory? Not that I'm aware of. that it's the the memory of they the can't be, they can't be taken apart obviously there's always there's, you know, yeah it's a system I, so that when you hear a sound a memory is evoked and your entire adaptive representational networks are firing and right so. right i so i am not aware of any studies but i can envision a way that um one could probably um do that by using representation of of the sound right I imagine that even though there there are no uh, there's no research that I'm aware of, I imagine that that is indeed possible because sounds, as uh, Doris was alluding to, um, evoke emotions from us, mm-hmm. and if the emotion is a uh, is a negative one, right, then I imagine that um, it could uh, channel uh, responses, behavioral responses that signify that you know, the, the sound is aversive or the memory of the sound is aversive. Um, but I'm not aware of um, uh, any research along uh, those lines. Um, I wanted to, however, uh, tackle that question of um, music in individuals with autism. And I, I too see a, a similar pattern as Doris was reporting that um, you know, many children enjoy music and have um, their preferred music. Uh, some of my patients, I can think of many of them who uh, are musicians. They they play an instrument, yes. and I was I was reflecting on that. I was I as I was thinking about this whole concept of touch, and we can think that you know you experience music through vibrations, which is part of our tactile processing system. And so uh, while I am not aware of uh, data that supports um, effectiveness of music intervention therapies, I think that that might be a reasonable thing to explore. Yeah. But it would need to be done, um, you know, certainly in uh, with, with scientific rigor. Um, but that's you know, there, there. I remember a parent telling me that her child um, would use words uh, when you sing to them. So, you know, they're able to sing the happy birthday song or the whatever, um, but they otherwise wouldn't say happy birthday. And we, you know, we, we, we that that concept is not new because we see it in uh, patients with other focal neurodeficits as opposed to the more global uh, brain challenges that we see with autism. Yeah, and where, where all this is going in terms of virtual reality and augmented reality, wearing those things, uh, a metaverse and so on and so forth, I really don't know. Um, it may be generational that I wince at all, some of these ideas and still like the idea of touch and still, still like the idea of music, but... Um, We'll see. I, I, I find it hard to imagine those things kind of going out of fashion somehow, but um, who knows? We <laughs>
And that was wonderful to have you both. Um, uh, thanks for joining in, Connie. Thank you, Doris, for the work. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.